Hey, it's Daryl Ellington, and you're listening to Found. I'm here with my personal shopper. Jordan Crook, co-host extraordinaire. That's right, and co-host, as well as she buys all my clothes for me. But... I don't. Imagine if I did, <laughs> you'd be on such a budget. You know, it was funny. We So we had a great conversation this week, a terrific conversation with a fantastic founder. We spoke to Julie Bornstein, who is co-founder and CEO at The Yes, and who has... Well, I mean, it's not even a contest, I don't think. The the best resume out of anyone we've ever had on the show, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I forgot to mention during it that the shirt I'm wearing right now, I bought because Instagram showed me an ad and I was like, oh, and then I bought that shirt. So That's my shirt now. Like, that's how <laughs> Daryl shops. Like, you show him something and he's like, here's my credit card. I want that. Exactly. Now. So she really needs to get on launching the men's section for the yes. The Yes is a very cool online shopping app specifically for women's clothing at launch, but it incorporates tons of brands. It's kind of like the mall, but digital, but totally reimagined from the ground up for what actual like e-commerce customers want instead of physical shoppers. Spotify for shopping. And I'm excited to get on there too. As soon as she told me that Rag and Bone was a partner, I was like, okay, well, let's get it. Yeah. Because that's most of my wardrobe. But also... I just feel like Julie, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about feeling like underachievers or like just straight losers because mm-hmm. we're talking to these founders who are so accomplished. And what's weird is that Julie is definitely the most accomplished founder we've ever talked to. Easily. And yet I didn't for some reason. I just felt like she was really friendly and warm. Very friendly, very approachable. Me- yeah. Like it felt like we were earth. on the same level, which is such an, an amazing accurate it's not true (laughs) it's an amazing quality to have but yeah she talks all about the founding of the s and kind of how she got there and how it's long been a dream of hers but she tells it much better than i do so enjoy this episode hi julia thanks for joining us today thanks for having me yeah of course can't wait to hear all about the yes and how you came to founding that company julie do you want to give us just kind of a quick high level the elevator pitch of of the yes and what it is and then maybe a bit of background about how you got started with that i'd love to the yes is a shopping platform right now we have women's clothing so it's um, a fashion shopping app. We're really a next generation digital department store. So we use technology to adapt to each user, kind of like Spotify for fashion. It's kind of my inspiration. We carry the widest assortment of fashion brands really anywhere online. So we have high and low. We have Levi's and Madewell. We have up to Chloe and Prada and everything in between. And our goal is to be the largest shopping destination, but in a way that is easy and manageable for each shopper. Yeah, very cool. So your background includes, you know, stint as CEO at Stitch Fix and and Stitch Fix had kind of like a similar vision of like, let's take away your choice part of it, right? Like we want to make sure that we're picking for you. But I, I think the the differentiator here, like you use all these brands, like the brands that people know and love and already are shopping with and interacting with to create this kind of profile. But you also still want to take away that kind of like that decision point, which becomes can become super overwhelming, I think, with time. I definitely I mean, I think especially in like a post COVID thing, it's, it's I think it's, there's more strain now because, you know, as things have started to ease and I've started to like go out 
you have that thing where you're like, okay, I guess I gotta like pick an outfit or get dressed or whatever. And you're like, how do I even do this anymore? Like, I just don't remember. Right. So <laughs> have you found that or is that something you're seeing with your, your kind of user group? First of all, I would say personally, I have that same experience. Um, so yeah, okay. yes, and I, you know, <laughs> I've been working in the industry for a long time. Yeah, I do think there's definitely a post-COVID situation happening. But you know, I would say from a sort of what we're trying to do standpoint, the business is more about shopping for yourself. So if you think about Stitch Fix sort of for the comparison as someone is a shopper for you and they're just sending you a box kind of you're not involved in the process at all. We're really sort of, I would say, a different kind of platform where you want to shop for yourself, but Mm. you want to have lots of assortment. You're picking out the product, but there are certain things you don't like. You never want to wear. You're not going to wear crop tops if you're 45. You're not going to wear off the shoulder stuff, whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or or you. (laughs) I have a really Um, long torso, Julie. Oh, (laughs) interesting. How could I tell the yes that? Like I have short legs, long torso. You wouldn't know it. Right. No, I mean, women have bodies that are, you know, they know because they've been trying on clothes all these years. And so how do you kind of give the algorithm input around your size and style and the preferences that you have, and then make the shopping experience kind of get rid of the things that you don't want to see and aren't going to work and see the things that are relevant and you like. And it includes style, but it also includes price point and brand preferences and color preferences. And then we get your, we sort of ask you a couple questions around sizing so we can always show you what's in stock. And so, you know, the idea is we want to sort of be the best and biggest shopping destination, but you can't have all of that assortment without having something that helps you filter through it in a just intelligent way. And, you know, most of e-commerce is kind of this one, especially in fashion is one size fits all for everybody seeing the same thing. And when they type in a search result, they see the same thing. And in our case, what everybody sees is different based on what works for them. So it really is like, as you describe it, the Spotify metaphor becomes even more appropriate it's like yeah that's the same way there like you open up your spotify app and you see music that you're likely to like some of it they know like you previously listened to this but some of it is like this is in the wheelhouse right but you never see stuff where it's like i would never listen to this in a million years right exactly well julie can you talk to me about like onboarding though right because it feels like okay if i've been to the yes six times and i've purchased you know thousand dollars worth of clothing and returned one item you have an idea at that point. The next time I come, you're like, okay, we've got Jordan figured out. But the first time I come, like, you're like, well, we don't know anything about her. Like, how do you, and, and you don't want it to be too, you don't want it to be too labor intensive, right? Because you want, at the end of the day, you want like my plastic, right? And so if I'm working too hard to get there, then that's troublesome. But if I'm not working hard enough, then you're not going to give me the right stuff. So how do you like balance that? And what's that like? Yeah. We did um, a ton of testing around what questions were, are going to give us kind of the highest signal data up front so we could limit the length of the onboarding process. It takes about three minutes and it's actually pretty fun. We started on the iOS app. So we just built website and we're still kind of in the middle of doing it and we're approaching it a little differently. But in app, you start by filling out the questions and we try to keep them as short, you know, keep them as short as possible, but really get enough information that when you land on your feed, 
it already feels like you and you get it. You see how the information you're giving in actually comes back and benefits you. And so, you know, as we ask the questions, we ask them in a very sort of specific way. So two examples is we do ask you, what will you never wear? And we ask you things that are sort of what we call polarizing. And then we also ask you for size. We say, what's your primary? What's your secondary size? So that, you know, most of us are like, you know, I'm a four, but sometimes I wear a six. So you're sort of in between. And those kinds of things actually give us a lot of great information. And then what we do is we do two things. One is when you're shopping, every product you can say yes or no to. So it's like our branded version of thumbs up and thumbs down. And that gives us great ongoing signal. And then in addition, we have pop quizzes. So every time you come back to your feed, you know, for the first number of times, there's more questions you can ask them. You can answer them or not, but they're super quick and easy to answer. And they're kind of fun and satisfying. And so we get very high completion rate. So that that's helps us sort of get the upfront. Yeah, I, yeah, that's really, really clever. Over time, about, as opposed to a huge form, and you're like, oh, yeah, I yeah. I exactly. just wanted to buy something, like I was ready to spend. You know, when you're coming in off the web, and if you've come to us through Google or something like that, and you come straight to a product page, you know, we that is kind of a different experience than an app in the closed system. And so, uh, what we're working on there is as you're kind of doing things within the page and then off the page, we sort of gather more information in context. So as you select your size, first of all, we say to you, do you want a size recommendation? And then just right there on the product page, you can give us height and weight. Otherwise, once you select a size, you know, like we keep it and then we'll just make the assumption that that's your size. And as we learn more about your shopping, you can always change the size. You know, we can make it more adaptive. So the whole thing is kind of adapting over time to each user. Have you ever considered, so I go one of two ways on these podcasts, Julia. I'm either gonna have you be my therapist or I'm gonna get super brainstormy. And I feel like we're going into brainstormy territory. And so I'm wondering, have you ever thought about having users attach their Instagram feed? Because I feel like, I mean, obviously, it would be pretty labor intensive to build like a computer vision algorithm that would detect brands. But at the very least, you could detect like a style pattern, right? And like what people put on Instagram is that's how I want to look all the time, right? Like that's how that's the best of the best. So that feels like it could be a way to be like, okay, I kind of get you and where you live fashion. Yeah. It's funny. We had we had a lot of starting data on a group of customers. We had sort of done this like list acquisition from a company that had gone out of business and it had kind of a long history of people's purchases. And we realized that in that case, there's so much noise in that kind of stuff that if you just ask people explicitly what brands, the first question is what brands do you like? That was actually a cleaner experience. I think that with Instagram, we're doing a ton of things. Like your idea is spot on because Instagram is probably the best platform for the aspirational aspects of fashion and what you want to look like. So we've done a few things. One is we have hooked up with a bunch of Instagrammers who just like the product and create their lists. And then they publish their lists, their yes lists. Because as you as you yes product while you're shopping, that stuff automatically collects into lists for you. We are letting people basically over time, follow friends and follow influencers so they can get that idea. And then what we're doing is we're working on computer vision to be able to take all of the outfits that the influencers are wearing and make those shoppable. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of another thing. We're also making our site available to influencers on Instagram. So if they want to 
use our inventory to tag their product they can, which is something that Instagram is working on now with kind of this new creator sort of selling capability. And then, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny, in the very, very first version, we had attach your own Instagram handle, and we didn't build it out. And I think it's still, it's like you bring back that memory, Jordan, of what one of our original ideas that I'm going to put back in the pipeline. Oh, man. Amazing. Oh, okay. So first brainstorm, check. (laughs) Yeah, we'll move into the therapy session shortly. (laughs) But I think I like that because, but you're right about the signal, right? Because if you, if you looked just at it, you would have to do so much excision of like, okay, well, there's all kinds of other stuff people are doing on Instagram that is not necessarily, that could very easily look like signal to fashion, but is probably not that, right? So And purchase history doesn't work either, right? Because like, even if you, like if I hooked in my credit card, which I buy everything on, and you were to eliminate everything that was in apparel, you would still end up with like, I probably wear... Actually, I Marie Kondoed recently in the last like couple of years. Mm. So I actually do wear a lot of what's in my closet. But mm. my my credit card history would <laughs> paint a totally different story, right? Like people I feel like wear what, like 30 to 40% of their closet at best. And then there's a bunch of stuff in there that's like, well, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So that feels like not a great signal either. Well, part, so a lot of what, you know, we realized is that it's so much better to just get like small data, explicit data than it is to try and use sort of reams of implicit data. Because at the end of the day, I think you're right. People don't wear all the clothes in their closet. They also change fashion changes, what they feel like wearing changes, a job changes. So it's kind of better if you can control the input. And then if you want to change it, you can change it. So you can edit your answers and you can, you know, we have this thing called pivot where if you're not getting if we, you feel like we're not getting you, you can like answer some more very specific questions to try and shift things a little bit. So I think that it is, yeah, to some degree, like more data isn't always better. Can you talk to us about how you got there? Because I feel like so many people in your position would be like everything, like give us everything. Because if you're trying to build like a Spotify for shopping, or if you're trying to build anything that's like, please trust us, we're mm-hmm. going to show you what you care about. Like, and the more you use it, the better we'll get. Like that right. promise that you're making to a customer, it feels like my natural inclination if I was building something like that would be like, I need to know everything. I need to right. know absolutely everything because that's, that's the only like way the, I'm going to be good at it. The Stitch Fix or the Netflix model, right, is like that, like, we're not going to trust your signal. We're going to analyze a lot of data and then we're going to suggest something that we think we're intuiting about you that you are not able to intuit about yourself, right? Yeah, so, it's like a don't trust your users mentality, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. they don't know best, we know best. Right. And it feels like it would be much easier or like more tempting to take that more path tempting, as yeah. a founder, right? And so I'm curious like how you, at what point, was that at Stitch Fix or was that during building the yes, or where, at what point were you like, no, 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 we want specific. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, you know, I mean, I, so I, out of college, I went and worked at Donna Karen. So that was in the early 90s. So I've been in fashion for a very long time. And then when I was at Nordstrom, I was at Nordstrom the first five years of building Nordstrom.com. And, you know, it was, I remember Dan Nordstrom hired me, literally, this is 1999. And he said, the future is personalization, Julie. And we literally didn't have like a functional website. And we didn't have most of the brand selling. And I was like, we just need to sort of get stuff up on the site first, and then we can get there. (laughs) But we were so far from there. And I mean, it's funny to think about 
sort of, you know, it took 20 years to actually sort of get that vision even a little bit played out. But what was interesting at Nordstrom, and it, it really struck me then, is that we didn't have it was very one way. So we weren't getting inputs from users explicit. We were looking, you know, they were doing lots of things, but we didn't have tools to kind of automate behaviors that they were doing. And we saw, I mean, I'm probably the, my instinct, Jordan, just to answer your question before I keep rambling is that I am such a um, heavy consumer and shopper. And I really am like a professional shopper online and offline. I grew up in Syracuse, New York. I spent my weekends at the mall because it was really cold and boring and I loved to shop. <laughs> and, um, you know, I knew every sort of nook and cranny of the mall. And I felt like, you know, when I when e-commerce became a thing in 96 and Amazon went live, I my brain exploded with like all the things that you could do to make shopping more efficient. But I've also I also know that as you're kind of hopping around a site and doing lots of things and sometimes looking for other people and getting gifts or buying for your boyfriend or whatever you're doing, you know, there's lots of stuff that you wouldn't want someone to sort of learn from your behavior. And so then, you know, fast forward to Stitch Fix, we were gathering data that was very specific and we were gathering a lot of what we called like explicit data. And that data was really helpful. We also, they are toyed with, you know, what else can you gather? But at the end of the day, getting information from the user explicitly was the most helpful. Then, of course, at Stitch Fix, there was a layer of, of a stylist who then would choose for you. So it was a sort of different model. And one of the things that was hard to do at Stitch Fix was to understand style. So we got really good at things like fit and when people had specific colors and we were really got like age was a really big signal at Stitch Fix. But keep in mind, the product was all it was a, it was a subset of the universe of product because it was all bought and a lot of it was made by Stitch Fix. And so what I really saw there was I've always loved brands and I've always wanted to sort of help the brands grow and explore and find new customers. And so the thought of doing this where the consumer actually, because I'm such a shopper, I was very focused on the styling tools, like the tools that the stylist used at Stitch Fix. But what I really wanted to build was a consumer facing experience, which basically just let sort of me tell you what I like and what I don't like and just, you know, help me get there faster so I don't have to open 20 tabs from different sites and I don't have to, you know, go through 20 pages, add to cart and then go and sort of figure out from there. So, you know, the idea of like... abandon most of it. Exactly. At midnight because you're exhausted and it's, you know, you gotta go to bed. <laughs> but how do you keep the right amount of... Because you still want, it sounds like you want active shopping, right? And you, and so how do you identify what's the right amount of that? Because there is a thrill, right? There's, especially for, I, I think a large number of people just really enjoy certain aspects of shopping or an amount of shopping and comparison and discovery, right? So how just do like you kind of. imagining Daryl on bnh.com, just well, like. On uh, every website. That's on anything. any website, Yeah. <laughs> There was the shopper of the two of us. If you, that's a little bit of a curveball. But like, yeah, how do you gauge that and find like what's right for kind of like the mass of your your addressable audience? Yeah, so it's a really good question, and I think so. We're a year old, and I think we have. I mean, we have you know 
as every startup does, about a thousand ideas of things we still need to try and build and do. But one of them is understanding kind of each user's proclivity for like how many they want to see. So the the sort of concept of choice and what is the right amount so that you feel like you have enough choice, but not overwhelming amount. And that number is probably different for different people and right. in different categories, right? So, you know, sort of my long-term idea is figure out what is the right amount of choice for kind of each user and, you know, get them roughly that amount. The truth is that we have a really, really large selection because we work with we work right now with 265 brands and we add more brands every week. And the goal is to really have every brand that is sort of relevant, that we think is relevant in the system. And we have their entire catalog. So unlike a department store where they'll go and they'll pick 10 items off a line of, you know, 100 styles for the season, we take the entire 100 styles. And so we have a lot of product. And so the idea is it's very hard and probably potentially impossible to tell you, you will like these three. I'm going to say Jordan because we only have women's clothes, even, even though Daryl's the shop, the shopper of the two. And once we add men's, Daryl, we'll come back to you. But um, and then, you <laughs> I know, can still do some damage, Julie. Like, don't okay. get me wrong. <laughs> so with things that are in your zone, it's very hard to say you're going to like this one and dislike this one. It's so fashion is so nuanced. And so the idea is kind of really getting the stuff that you might like upfront and getting the stuff that we know you're not going to like sort of out of the way so that it's just, you know, you can sort of dream among and plan among the things that you're going to like. And so what's interesting is my, so my daughter is 18. And when she, when I look at her feed, I realize it really works because the stuff in her feed, and again, same exact, you know, we're both on the yes, is totally foreign to me. It's not stuff I would ever consider wearing. I want to see. It doesn't feel like a website where I would want to shop or an app where I would want to shop. Whereas she looks at mine and she's like, you know, such mom clothes, you know? And so because we have such a big assortment, it's kind of like get rid of the stuff that's irrelevant. And by the way, by getting rid of it's we don't actually get rid of anything. We don't hide stuff. It's right. just way lower. So if you want to look for it, or if I want to get something for Lucy, that's a gift or whatever on my, I can. It's basically, how do you just help me zone in on the space that's relevant to me? I'm going to answer a question you didn't kind of ask, but one thing uh -huh. that it just as I think about music and it's kind of what, what makes us kind of special and how it's why it's hard to do this for fashion is when I was at Stitch Fix, I interviewed a data scientist who had been a Pandora and he described to me in the early days that they had like 25 musicians who were music experts and they could listen to a piece of music and they could identify all the elements of the music and they would go and do that and sort of create, you know, this sort of catalog of all these different tags in essence that you would apply to a song so that then sort of the machine learning can happen and it can understand, okay, here are the other pieces that have this element in the music. And this is what might make someone who likes this also like that. And so yes, basically that's what we did. We built the most extensive taxonomy that exists in fashion. So in order to make recommendations in you know this category, it's really hard just to look at an image. So if you go to Google, you can type you know, red dress, but the stuff that shows up is not at all relevant to you personally. First of all, you know, it's going to be all over the place. It's style wise, price wise, size wise, all of that stuff. And so for us, what we do is we understand we apply about anywhere up to like 500 kind of tags or dimensions to every product so that we really understand the products that we're, you know, 
basically that are in the app. And that way, as you say that you don't like things, we really understand those things that are match those qualities and those things that don't. That's great. Yeah. Cause I know like, especially in the early days of, of digital music and streaming music, that was a huge undertaking and one that has borne fruit for the companies that did it, like building the, the music genome, right? Did you build it all kind of yourselves or was there anything off the shelf that you could get that was already some kind of like a structure of the data or did you have to kind of start from scratch? We looked at a bunch of companies that are kind of doing some form of this as SaaS businesses for retailers, but their taxonomies were just too basic. So we built it ourselves and we have a woman named Judy Say who is amazing and she basically built out the taxonomy. She's, you know, both she's been in tech and fashion for a long time. She worked with me and with our fashion director named Taylor Tomasi Hill. And so, you know, we weighed in and we kind of went through and we just took every characteristic and we do, we do objective. We also do subjective. So we'll do things like, you know, it's black, it's cashmere, it's boat neck, it's long sleeves, but we'll also do Things like, you know, it's good for winter, it's casual, you know, some of the more sort of other dimensions too, so that if you're searching for things and you are going on vacation, you can say, I'm looking for, you know, vacation clothes, and we understand what that means also. If you're listening to Found, you're probably already super interested in startups and the overall startup ecosystem. So we've got a great deal for you. We're going to offer you 50% off either a one-year or a two-year subscription to Extra Crunch. Extra Crunch is TechCrunch's premium product offering. And when you go there, you'll get deep dive interviews with some of the top founders in the industry. You'll get market maps on specific verticals and some of the most exciting areas of growth in startup land. You'll also get uh, surveys of some of the top VCs in different areas, including different geographies. So you can subscribe to Extra Crunch at extracrunch.com. That's probably the easiest way. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, follow the links for Extra Crunch and you'll get a prompt to subscribe and then just enter that code that's found, the name of this podcast, during checkout and you'll get 50% off on either a one-year or a two-year subscription. We've been talking more about the consumer side of like the, the two-sided marketplace that you have, but then on the other side, you have you know all of your brand partners, right? And since you're doing this in such a different way, like you can't sort of like, well, or can you, you can't, it seems to me you can't sell shelf space. Like you're like, oh, we can't do like, well, we'll do an end cap for you or whatever. Right. Because it's on the web, but, and, and it's personalized to each individual person. So how do those relationships and conversations go? Do they understand kind of what you're doing? And then this is a totally separate secondary question. So we can save it for later. But like, do you ever consider just what, once you have that genome, like, is there a plan to like, well, we can work directly with them, white label, or we can, that can be a separate business that we, that we work on. Yeah. So two wildly different. Yeah. Stories. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> and what do you like for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the first question around sort of what is our relationship like with brands? How did we make them? And, you know, we don't have an end cap. Very true. And it's really relevant actually, because we, so we started with the luxury brands because in the space, it's really our goal is to have everyone in one place, which is very hard to do. Generally, you know, the Pradas and the Balenciagas are not sold in the same place where the Everlanes and the Madewells are. But, you know, in our world, people shop both. And, and we've seen that play out. I mean, a given, you know, cart has you know, really a total range of brands. And it's really fun to see. And so, you know, we sort of feel like, okay, listen, we're the modern platform. 
A, people shop high-low, and we want them to be able to buy it in one place. So we started with the high-end brands, and we explained to them what we were doing, and we actually built a prototype for them so we could visually show them because it was before we had launched. We, we worked on this for two years before we launched. And they, you know, basically their first question was, well, you know, who are we next to? And I said, that's an outdated way of thinking about it. That's not how our business works. Each user has a different set of you know products that show up for them. And if someone is going to buy Balenciaga and is never going to buy Everlane, we're not going to show them Everlane. And if they're you know someone who maybe hasn't bought Balenciaga yet, but they're showing proclivity to like that style, you know, we'll show it to them as an inspiration. So we actually have a lot of about sixty percent of our purchasers are under thirty. About sixty percent of our sales go to people over 40 because they spend more. But so it's a great way for a brand to kind of find a younger customer and sort of be there to inspire them, even if they're not yet going to shop for that brand or not yet on those high-end platforms. But our point was, think of us as like your dream boutique where you walk in and it's kind of all stuff that you would like from a whole range of brands. And if you want to buy a couple t-shirts while you're also buying a dress for an event, you can do all of that. And so that, you know, I think they got it. And they really like the idea. I, I give huge credit to the brands because they're, you know, they're pretty conservative about their distribution as they should be. It's kind of how they control their brand in so many ways. But they were willing to give us a try and they really liked the concept themselves as shoppers. And so that was how we were sort of able to get it. Our, our model also, by the way, is just that we take a cut of the sale and that's the only time we take money. And there's so there's no fee to be on the platform. And the thing that we ended up doing that we did not intend to do in the very beginning was build the technology so that they literally don't have to do anything to be part mm -hmm. of our platform. I just realized like the second we have to get in line as like another player who they want to, you know, integrate with because we were a startup and we didn't have volume to start, we would never get there. So do you scrape? Do you just like, they're like, we, okay, yeah, well, we here's Balenciaga.com, like have fun. So yes, we, we basically... We go and we scrape all we what we call is ingest, but yes, it's basically scraping, going in and getting all of their. <laughs> it's a fancier way. Neither sound scrape. nice, to be honest. Like we should both come exactly. up together collaboratively during this brainstorm session. A better word. A better that. word. I, Jordan, I would. I mean, you're the writer. Please, I, okay, give I'm me more be words about it. Okay, I'm be good. About it. <laughs> so yeah, we basically get all the information that's available. So it's the text, it's the images, and then what we do is we basically, we also get the inventory levels. So all of that stuff, we basically then put it through our own system that then tags the item because most of these right. sites are pretty basic. So then we'll apply all the data to the product. But then we also built kind of a way to then automate the order placement back into their site so that it's wow. really seamless for them. It okay, just looks like an e-com order, so they don't have to have a different path for it. We then, um, we're kind of the merchant of record, so to speak. So then what we end up doing is we end up communicating with a customer. So we'll notify you, we'll send you a text or an email, whatever your preference is on where the product is, when it's arriving. And then if you return it, you sort of get the label through our site. So we make it really easy for the customer, but we can sort of leverage everything they've already built. And this feels like it might be an assumption, but based on what I do know of you, Julie, and how you make decisions, I feel like I'm right, which is that like, it's harder to get those first brands. So you go for the the tough ones, right? Which are the, the high-end brands. And then from there, you actually have explicit data from the customer. So when someone's like, well, how do I know if I'll even be seen? How do I know if I'll even 
you know, how do I know if this is even worth my time? Not only have you made it super easy, but you're like, well, <laughs> we have like 30% of our customers put you as their number one brand. So like, just do it, right? Like it's right. kind of, a, and you can kind of keep going down that list because you have it. That's the first question you're asked. So you just keep going down the list and get more and more brands that way, right? Yeah. And it's not, I mean, it's a little, it's, I wish it were always that way. Sometimes it's that way. And in fact, I many brands- it. Yeah. Well, and many brands come to us, actually. Once we launched, we got a lot of brands coming to us. But there are always the brands that you really want, who are really special, who, you know, it's a it's a very like these are all artists. And so sometimes the answers aren't rational. Sometimes they just don't want to give away any margin. You know, I mean, there's a variety of, of things going on. And so, yes, it's definitely was hardest to get the beginning brands and then easier. But the, I would say there's still probably 20 to 30 brands that are very high up on our list that have not come on the platform yet that we're in conversations with. Let me know if you need me to put in a call. Yeah, yeah we'll okay. do what we can. I'll, we're, we're, I'll shake we're the old Shopify tree. Yeah. <laughs> so Lisa, Lisa Green is our head of partnerships and I'm going to give her your email cool. after this. And is Rag and Bone one of them? Rag and Bone is on the platform. So Rag and Bone is like, my, like 78% of my wardrobe. Exactly. I've done the math. And I'm still trying to get them to sponsor me. I don't know why they won't. <laughs> Clearly high profile. Um, can we talk That's a little awesome. bit, Julie, about your like founder journey, right? Because it feels like you've been like an executive for a long yeah. time. And then... And a board member like on a number of companies. And a lot of people would just be like with your resume and your experience would just be thrilled to be like, okay, I'm just going to do boards, I guess, for the rest and kind of chill. But <laughs> I mean, right. not that boards are chill. You have to do work. I know. But like... <laughs> Daryl, alienating all board members. Way to go, bro. But yeah, like what made you be like, I want to be in the driver's seat. And I've seen firsthand how stressed and hairless all the driver's seat folks are. And I want to do that anyway. Like, yeah. And I just want to acknowledge I didn't answer Daryl's other question, but right. we can come back to it later. We'll come back. Yeah. So. When I was little, I wanted to be Gloria Vanderbilt. I was like, oh my God, she's her name is on people's butts everywhere. Like she's not just a fashion designer, but you know, a business tycoon. And I thought that that seemed really cool. And then, you know, life happened and I was a government major undergrad and, you know, did a bunch of things. But, you know, when I graduated from college, I mentioned I went to work for Donna Care and I was I was interested in fashion. And primarily, like I had worked for the Senate one summer for a senator. I had done a ton with Planned Parenthood, a real passion area of mine, and felt like I would always do those things. But I thought that I would prefer business and fashion was always my interest. So I thought I was going to go pursue that. And I ended up working, doing a bunch of interesting things. I worked in, for an investment bank. And then I joined Starbucks because my husband had gone to work for Amazon and he was up in Seattle and I looked around and I thought, where do I want to, what companies are cool in Seattle? Because he loves his job and I actually hated mine. So I was going to move up to Seattle. Anyway, sort of, you know, long story short, I ended up joining Nordstrom as they were launching e-commerce. And I had that feeling of being in a startup because we were, what I, you know, what I didn't quite appreciate was that Nordstrom was completely well known and we didn't have to build a brand from scratch, but we did build a business from scratch. So we were spun out in the day. This is the late nineties and people thought, Oh, we'll have a separate IPO for the dot com businesses. And we actually had investors. We had Bill Gurley as an investor from Benchmark and Madrona. Oh. So it was kind of interesting. So we had, you know, this currency to, to hire sort of engineers and the mothership Nordstrom Inc. at the time wanted nothing to do with us. They saw us as a threat. So, you know, we had to go. Like I would go to the showrooms and say, 
just show us what the Nordstrom Inc. buyers bought so we can buy the same thing. So we would um, basically, you know, we were trying, we knew the customer who shopped at Nordstrom was the one that would come to Nordstrom.com too. But, you know, it was pretty interesting. And there were lots of late nights and toiling and it was very startup-y at the time. And I absolutely loved it. And it just, you know, what I loved was creating something from nothing. It was just, it was thrilling. And um, it was so fun to see it work. So fast forward, I went to Urban Outfitters, kind of did similar thing, starting up the e-com business. It had been sort of a fledgling business, and we really got it to scale. And then I went to Sephora, and Sephora had like this dated sort of barely a live platform that had was no longer supported by the third party that had created it. So we rebuilt it and we did lots of inventive things during the years I was there. We, you know, mobile became a thing. We built mobile and social became a thing and we built beauty talk. I had this awesome partner, Bridget Dolan, who she and I would kind of just come up with cool ideas and make it happen. And, you know, I would say one advantage I had in those cases was that the brands were well known. So Sephora was already the mecca for anyone who loved beauty. And so it was like everything we did got instant, you know, pickup. But, you know, I always really enjoyed kind of coming up with new ideas. And also I was in all of those cases, I was the champion for why e-commerce mattered. Because in the early days, people were like, eh, you know, it can have a little few resources, but and I'm like, no, it's the future, we have to do this. And, and in each of those companies, you know, those really, those were some of the retailers that were first and big in e-commerce. So, you know, I felt like, very successful too, I think all of them, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, I think w- there were a couple of times, moments during my career where I almost went and started my own thing. So after Donna Karen, I, I was kind of obsessed with this idea of starting a denim bar. So it was, we were back in those days, we were buying all of our jeans, like in the, at thrift stores and the basement of Urban Outfitters. It was Levi's, uh, used Levi's was what everyone was wearing. And then the world was starting to like designer jeans were coming back. They had been there in the 80s. They had gone away. Now they were coming back and there were all these cool denim brands. And I was like, I just want like a place I can walk in and see all of the brands. And I had this whole concept, but it was, I was 24 and it was 1994. And there was no such thing as like capital markets for young people. It was really before entrepreneurs were 24. And also when that did happen, it was out here in the Bay Area and it was for tech. So it was kind of more like just a dream. It never really felt real. And thank God I didn't do it then because I didn't know the first thing about running a business. But then when I left Nordstrom, I had another idea, which I was also obsessed with, and I still kind of am. It was basically a business all around um, dresses and it was online and offline and it was used and new. It was a cool idea. It was called Frock. It never happened. Might still though, it sounds like if you're yeah. still... <laughs> and this is a podcast by the way they're like a bunch of entrepreneurs <laughs> who are like i'm gonna go build frog, uh, someone else you. is gonna go build it yeah um, i won't tell you <laughs> anymore might be jordan it. crook <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway so dan nordstrom convinced me not to do it he was saying you know he basically was like don't start a business from scratch it's such a headache at that point i was pregnant with my second baby and you know he talked me out of it Anyway, then, you know, when I met Katrina Lake, the founder of Stitch Fix, I was at Sephora and someone introduced me to her and over, you know, online and I sort of, it sounded like everything else. And then he wrote back and he was like, no, you really have to meet her. This is really different. So I was like, okay. And so she and I met and I like had a million 
ideas. It was so up my alley and there were so many things about it that I loved. And so we started talking and we really connected. And so we spent, you know, a couple months talking and then she asked me to join the board. Then, you know, two years later, I decided to leave to go in-house and be the COO. And um, I really loved so many things about that business. I I loved sort of mostly, you know, sort of the fact that we were building something new that was cool and better and interesting. And I just was really taken by the whole thing. And in that time, when I went there, I kind of thought this is going to be this is my moment to go to a startup and to figure out if this is what I meant to do or not. Or do I go back and be the CEO of a big company after this? Like, what do I go do? So, you know, I would say my time there really confirmed that I just love the speed that we were able to move in, the fact that we could be laser focused on building this new thing, as opposed to also managing this legacy business, which we were doing in all of the other businesses. And so it just gave me kind of that last bit of, I would say, both being sure that this is what I wanted to do, and frankly, the experience of just working with our board and with investors and, you know, starting something from scratch. And so I knew I wanted to do that. And I, you know, I learned so much in each of these businesses. I learned so much that really the yes is the culmination of all the things I learned. And it's funny because obviously Stitch Fix did well. And many people said to me, don't you want to just go sit on boards? So to answer that question, I mean, the truth is, I just still, I love operating. I love building stuff. I feel like even though I'm old for being a founder, I felt like I have this unique combination of having knowledge that no one else has and that I was just so at the intersection of technology and fashion that I really could build this business in a way that I really felt no one else could. And also, I just sort of felt like, you know, I'd seen so many young founders who were doing this for the first time struggle through like the management stuff. And I had done all that stuff before. And so I just really felt like actually it was the, and my kids were not little anymore. So I didn't have babies that I was also trying to take care for. God bless all those women who do it with babies because that's no easy feat. But I just sort of felt like now is the time and I have the energy and I still have the drive and I really want to do this. So wow. Yeah. yeah the management part, cause that's usually, I mean, we spend a lot of time on this show talking about the management part with people who are learning it for the first time and are very candid about like i don't know what's like there's all these people and i gotta manage them and it's hard <laughs> well and daryl and myself too are like yeah. you know i mean we've been doing it for a little while but we're still very much in the learning process so yeah it's we're like still not normally, good at it at all yeah I think no not my even Slack a little has bit like all kinds of unread messages i don't know what's yeah, going on. <laughs> most of them are like you forgot what you told me to do and i'm like yeah you're right about that um, so yeah we we do that a lot i think it's interesting to I love when you said like no one else could build it like I can. I think mm. that's like a question that I think younger founders or like, you know, like people who are just out of college and like, oh, I have to build this. Like don't always ask themselves. Right. And or don't have like a good clear answer for because it, it's like, why are you the one? Right. Yeah. Why? But why just you? Julie, like your experience adds up to like there's literally no one else who could do this in this way right like if i like just looking at your list of accomplishments it's like you have all the actual proven track record to make this thing in a way that is unique like the question doesn't even need to be asked which i feel yeah. like begs the question of like the investment story like and i hate to like presume that fundraising was easy for you but i kind of do like what was that like and then I guess yeah. we can go back to Daryl's silly question. <laughs> just, we don't have to. We can just address it 
later in an article one or day something. it's fine yeah so yes it was i mean when you have a track record and you know relationships already it's and you're 47 it's totally different raising money than when you're you know young and going out and having a track record so it definitely was easier for me and i was able to raise more and what was interesting was that i went to this event lightspeed who is not an investor, but has been a sort of friend along the way, invited me to this women's um, founder event. And, you know, I assumed it was going to be all young women. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to go, but, you know, I'll go. And it was a two-day thing. And it was so awesome because I realized that, you know, even though I had gone through many things that many of those people hadn't, they were still dealing with things that I was dealing with. And it was fun to get the energy and it was fun to hear about other businesses. And there were a few other older women there too. So it was, it was a little bit more mixed in age, but most of those women had raised, you know, I would say maybe the max was like 3 million and a lot of them had raised under a million and I raised 11 million. This was for our seed. And they were like, whoa, you know, a, how did you raise that much? But B, why did you raise that much? What gave you the gumption to raise that much? What did you, why did, you know, for me, I, I mean, I felt like I did the calculus around like what it was going to take to actually build what we needed to do. And I definitely was not building something small. I'm like, you know, this is a go big or go home kind of situation. I'm too like long in my career for this not to be something that is really meaningful. And so, you know, if you're going to build something big, you need the you know, funding to be able to get you to the, where you need to go. And so many businesses don't succeed because they just don't have enough money to get to the next stage where they can prove that they've been able to achieve whatever milestone. So it was really interesting. I do think women tend to probably raise less in their first round. And so that does not set them up for success. But also certainly in order to raise a lot up front, you need to have a track record. And, you know, there's no doubt that that was what enabled me to do it. And, you know, it's easier that like it gets harder to raise over time because you have metrics you need to hit and the valuations are high and then people are, you know, so the first round was probably the easiest. And I just, you know, my goal was find investors who I love and believe in, who understand what I'm doing and who I'm excited to have as partners, really thought partners. So Kirsten Green was the very first person I went to. I actually didn't know her personally, but I had heard her speak so many times and yeah. I just I yeah. sent her a note. She wrote me right back. We met and, you know, the rest is history. But she's been an amazing partner. For your business, it was like the first person I would think of, right? Like, yeah. if you came to me at the beginning and we're like, who should I talk to? I'd be like, Kirsten. Exactly. I, it's also interesting, too, to be like, to know, like, okay, I, I actually do need X amount of dollars. And it sounds like mm -hmm. a big number. But like, mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times, particularly for consumer facing tech founders will underestimate what they need and you need scale quickly. You have to, you have to get enough brands on and you have to get mm -hmm. enough people on mm -hmm. right at the beginning exactly. or you're screwed. You can't yeah. piecemeal something like that out. You can't be like, oh, we'll take the next two years to grow. Like that doesn't, yeah. everything churns away. And, and, and if you, you have just a small amount in the bank too, then you're like back to fundraising process so quick and then you split your focus and, and you can't exactly. build. Oh, no good. Yeah, exactly. we get it. We've been there. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, but to, the, to your point, Jordan, I actually like assessed that I needed $8 million. And that was based on how many engineers, how long a time. And then I decided, well, let's get a little cushion. So let's raise 10. And then <laughs> Scott Friend from Bain wanted to put some money in. So I was 11. But yeah. <laughs> a little, little $3 million cushion. Yeah, it's so wild. It's, it is wild to be talking about our seed in this way, right? Like, it's like, wow. But, but yeah. Especially when yeah. did you raise your seed? 2018. 
Yeah, especially then, I guess. I mean, it's all it's all been going up, up, up for the last like six years, but still, that's 2018. You know what's funny? Seed is pretty big. One of the things, though, is I was having, I met Apoorva Meda, the founder of Instacart, and he was trying to recruit me. And I, you know, he was sort of talking about his business and he was talking about it in numbers that were so large. And I was like, it, man, if you're going to build something big, you got to go big. You got, you know, and I just, it's really helpful to kind of look at these businesses that are ahead of you and the ones that have really thrived and how kind of big they went with it as an inspiration, because there's so many examples of the opposite, but I think, you know, it was a good reminder. Well, and there's uh, like, as a counterpoint, there's also so many examples where I feel like at the very least, there might not be many examples, but we're inundated with the examples of the big the big guys, right? Like the big behemoths that come out and are raising $60 million series B and a, you know, and I think that there are two kind of founders. There's the one that looks at that and is like, how will I ever? Right. And then there's the people that look at that and they're like, I can do that. You know, that sit down with a Purva Meta and hear him saying big numbers and be like, I can do what you do, you know, like not in a disrespectful way, but like, I'm I'm here with you. I can do that, right? And you definitely give me the latter vibes. I mean, obviously, you're out here crushing it. So, Julie, I feel like in uh, Daryl and I talked about this a little bit, but in every episode of these podcasts, we talk to these founders about how to be good people managers, and we've squandered that opportunity with what could be, you know, the most experienced people manager that we've had on the show. So, I feel like what you should do is give us like your top line advice on how to be good at that. All right, let me try and do that succinctly. So I think Don't. number Just one, <laughs> you know, I would say that I people ha- I'm a big believer in people leaning into their strengths, understanding what those are, and helping the person to be in the right role to leverage them. I think acknowledgement and recognition is really important. People just want to know, you know, that they're, the work they're doing is appreciated. And I think context is huge. So I'm a big, if anything, over communicator to the team so that they understand how what they're doing kind of feeds into the overall thing. So I remember my very first job at a college, you know, I was a cog in a wheel and I didn't even have a real perspective on like what I was doing and what other people were doing. And I just think that making sure people understand the big picture the context, teaching them how to read a PL if they don't know how to read a PL, which you often don't if you haven't been gone to business school. You know, I think those kinds of things make everyone understand sort of what you're all striving towards and have the same goal and just transparency. Like I just am really transparent when things are good, when things are bad, what we're trying to do. So I think it's the communication, the humanity. You know, I think at the end of the day, everyone wants to feel respected and deserves to be respected. And so, you know, those are kind of the tenets, I think, that I apply most to management. I love the context bit. I feel like I, like, struggle with it just out of sheer laziness because, like, it does take extra work to do that. It's really easy to say, like, I need these people to do this and this and this and this and kind of, like, go. And they'll probably give a better result and be happier doing it knowing the full story, even if it takes you know, an extra half hour every time to... Well, and if you think about the role of the leader, like, I mean, that's probably the single, their single biggest responsibility is communication. And you don't, you know, you sort of assume that's like a side thing I got to do, but it's actually a core part of the job. It's the main thing. Yeah. Well, Julia, thank you so much for hanging out with us on the show and sharing so much with us. Really appreciate it. It was really fun. You guys were awesome. Thank you for having me. 
All right, that was our conversation with Julie Bornstein, co-founder and CEO of The Yes. And Jordan, what did you think of our chat with Julie? After we ended recording, I asked her if she wanted to take me on a shopping trip. I'm so curious about what her closet looks like. Jetty, my puppy, is also very curious. He's squeaking his toy <laughs> gloriously, being like, yeah, let's go see Julie's closet. But yeah, she's cool. I mean, I feel like I learned a lot, and I want to hang out with her. She, she kept bringing up collaborators, too. I think that was another thing that was like really... We talked in the intro about how approachable and warm she was. And I think one of the the things that kind of reiterated that was she would talk frequently about like, oh, you know, when we came up with this great idea or whatever, but then she would immediately talk about a collaborator she had in that and name the person, which is like awesome, right? And it really seems yeah. like she had a series of great partnerships that like helped her get to where she is now. Yeah, a lot of credit where it's due, it felt like. And I, I appreciate people that can do that. Especially yeah. people like her who are like out here raising $11 million seed rounds and stuff. Yeah. When she brought that up, that was like, wow. Cause we talked to a lot of funders and founders and we talked about rounds and sizable seeds, but that's a huge seed. Especially in fashion tech. Like you normally hear yeah. about like that kind of seed going to like, we're going to build a spaceship or like we're going to build, you know, like a new biochemical cure for cancer or something. Right. Like, that, or on that's the, on the flip get. side, like we're going to build a, the database to API, talkie, talkie, something, something. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Zeros and ones. And she's yeah. like, no, Spotify for shopping. 11 million, yeah. thanks. Consumer focused, double-sided marketplace, $11 million. Give it to me in the bank. Nice. Yeah, that's great. But yeah, I can't wait to see what's next. I mean, based on that and based on her energy too, she just seems so like so enthusiastic about what she's trying to do. And yeah, I, I think there's huge things in the future for the yes. And I mean, I'm just waiting for the men's collection to launch and then I'm going to be, I got to, I got to be dapper. I think they could call it the Y, but just the letter Y. Oh, I get it. That's a good biology joke. Yeah. yeah. I'm nailing it. <laughs> All right. Leave us a five-star review for these great jokes and come back next week. <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor, Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch managing editor, Jordan Crook. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni and edited by Grace Mendenhall. And Maggie Stamets is our associate producer. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Our guest this week was Julie Bornstein, co-founder and CEO at The Yes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618 for the chance to get your voicemail played on air. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Hold up. 